Welcome to Goodfellow Podcast. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr Anil Sharma about the management of endometriosis in primary care. Anil is a private gynaecologist working in Auckland at Ascot Central and has special interests in endometriosis, abnormal uterine bleeding and urogynecology. Welcome, Anil. Thanks, Louise. Really nice to talk. So today we're talking about endometriosis. How common is it in New Zealand? It's probably about the same level throughout the Western world, Louise. Probably 6 to 10% of women of childbearing age. And as long as you have a high index of suspicion uh, with just about everyone with pelvic pain, you, you, you probably won't miss any cases. The pathology of endometriosis is not entirely understood. What are the theories of causation? We still um, think that retrograde menstruation probably has something to do with it. In other words, um, having the period blood coming and products coming through the fallopian tubes. Although it just seems far too simplistic because even in um, other laparoscopic procedures, you often see blood in the peritoneum. Um, and it just seems far too simple to think that um, endometrium is like a plant seed that implants. So we know there's genetic factors. We suspect that there are environmental factors. Uh, various toxins and dioxins have been implicated. Uh, we know that ethnically it varies slightly amongst different ethnicities. Um, so there probably are other things as well. There's even a stem cell theory that the stem cells that are to do with replenishing the endometrium each month uh, also somehow ectopically migrate or arise elsewhere. There's probably um, some sort of tissue differentiation going on so that tissues that are outside the uterus can become endometrium. And there's even developmental theories where when the malarian ducts are forming some of the internal genitalia, that the tissues get arrested outside the uterus and, and, and uh, transform. So it, it sort of becomes quite academic in terms of um, what the cause is. We're, we're sort of hopefully today going to concentrate more on how it presents and how we can manage it. So talking about presentation, um, women can present with a variety of symptoms. What presentations do you see in your practice? Okay, now that's a good, that's a good question. One, one of the things that um, one of my trainers when I was younger said to me was that um, any woman with pelvic pain just assume that she has endometriosis until proven otherwise. And that might sound like it's a bit over the top, but you're probably aware that we constantly get accused of missing endo as a diagnosis. And the, it, it's still commonly said that uh, it's the average time for diagnosis is eight to 10 years. Well, I, I don't actually believe that anymore. I think the, um, certainly in Auckland, in, in, in clinical practice, I'm finding that GPs are pretty switched on to endo as a diagnosis. The women can present with the classical four Ds, which is uh, dysmenorrhea, uh, dysuria, uh, dyskesia, which is painful defecation, and uh, dyspareunia, uh, pain on intercourse, usually deep in the pelvis. But I think you just have to have your eyes open to all types of pelvic pain, chronic pelvic pain, daily pelvic pain, um, pain that can't easily be ascribed to other causes in, in the differential, which we'll come to. 
So most of the time I'm seeing women who just have some of the three or four Ds. Uh, sometimes I'm seeing women who've just got chronic pain. Um, sometimes I'm seeing women who are very anxious about having one area of pain. Um, women who become quite anxious about the uh, link with fertility, infertility. So it, it really becomes quite a, a sort of medico-surgical consult in the sense that um, certainly surgery is not for everyone. Uh, you have to just go through a, a, a diagnostic sieve. Um, some women seem to be more at risk than others. What are the risk factors for endometriosis, Anil? It's quite difficult, actually, because I, I mean, I think back to medical school and we were, um, things were very didactic then and everything was Ten Commandments based and you, everyone followed rules and you sort of come out into the real world and half of what you're taught doesn't actually make a lot of sense. I, I don't actually think there's any really good way apart from a family history that gives you clues. So first degree relatives who've had endo does raise your risk. The other big problem we've got is that depending on what study you read, anywhere uh, between one in 10 to three in 10 women have got non-symptomatic endometriosis as well. When you do something else like a sterilization procedure, you see it. So it, it is, uh, it, I find it quite challenging because it doesn't always create symptoms. It creates complex symptoms when it does. It sometimes does have a link with infertility and sometimes doesn't. Uh, not everyone is cured by surgery. There are other causes of pelvic pain. So it really needs uh, quite a sort of detailed analysis and some investigations and sometimes surgery. Other risk factors. I guess if you've got someone who has got even vague pelvic pain and ha is having problems getting pregnant, uh, once you've excluded other causes, that would give you some pointers. In the clinical examination, how important is this? And when we are examining a woman, what are we looking for? I think it's important that someone does a clinical examination. Um, I think if you've got a woman with pelvic pain uh, with symptoms that could be endometriosis you're probably going to find that if you're referring them to the public hospital they they probably will not uh, look favorably upon the referral without an examination so for those patients certainly i think a bimanual examination bringing their smear up to date if it isn't uh, is worthwhile you're looking for uh, fornical tenderness. You're looking for uh, tenderness in, take it in, in a circle and actually palpate the anterior, left lateral, posterior, right lateral fornices. Try and tilt the cervix a bit and see if the uterus is tender. See if there's any sort of peritonism from any cervical motion tenderness that might be positive. Um, but the symptoms, and signs don't closely always match up. Sometimes you'll have patients who've got LIF pain and the endo later on will be in the up and on the right side. Uh, or, so it, it it's doesn't actually closely match a lot of things. It's not like looking for acute appendicitis. For other patients, if you've got um, private patients, for example, if they're going to see a gynecologist in the near future, I don't think uh, a clinical examination is imperative if they've come to you with pain that they feel has got to a point where they need a specialist review. 
What role does laboratory tests and imaging have in making the diagnosis? Okay, um, tests not so much. Uh, obviously, if there's associated um, heavy periods, uh, there's always room to do a haemoglobin, uh, look for iron deficiency, anemia, and a ferritin. And that also can be useful in the sense that when we come on to treatment, uh, Mirena can play a part. So if you've got uh, blood tests that allow you to apply for a Pharmac subsidy, that's quite good. S traditionally, we, we've always said that sonography is fairly reasonable at diagnosing adenomyosis, which is where you have bits of the lining in the muscle layer of the uterus, but fairly useless at diagnosing endometriosis. However, just to um, add a, a note there, if you've got an endometriotic cyst in the ovary, then sonography is very good. Having said all that, recently uh, sonographers and radiologists have improved transvaginal imaging significantly because what they're now doing is almost making it more clinical in the sense that when they're doing the examination, they're recording uh, where the tenderness is, what structures are, were more tender than others. They're specifically looking at trying to look at utrosacral ligaments, looking at all the common places where endo tends to occur. And they're also trying to make some written assessment of how structures move with relation to each other. So they're trying to see if the pouch of Douglas is relatively free or does the uterus and cervix and ligaments there have a degree of fixity on the bowel that's at the back. So it has got more useful and I find it quite useful in the sense that, you know, it does help you make decisions about surgery sometimes because if you've got someone with an endometrioma, or which is commonly known as a chocolate cyst as well, then that often leads to surgery rather than any conservative therapies. So I find that useful. MRI is probably of less use in the sense that it, it should only really be used for preoperative imaging in cases where you really are suspecting the possibility of severe disease. It will help you to arrange surgery in conjunction with other experts such as uh, laparoscopic urologists, laparoscopic colorectal surgeons because Really, it, it, surgery for severe endo has become more and more a multidisciplinary um, uh, team approach. But so no, not routine. I wouldn't routinely ask for an MRI. And what differential diagnoses should we be considering? They're really the, a lot of them are bowel related. So things like IBS and diverticulitis, other pelvic gynae problems such as fibroids, although I must say that fibroids don't often cause pelvic pain unless they've undergone degeneration. We should be thinking about the bladder, we should be thinking about problems like interstitial cystitis, overactive bladder syndrome, we should be thinking about pelvic inflammatory disease, salpingitis, and of course we should think about adenomyosis. It's quite uncommon that endometriosis presents in an acute way but I'm sure the whole audience is aware that we often get women who get referred to the public hospital or go through ED with severe abdominal pain 
get admitted, get lots of analgesia, have an ultrasound scan and a pregnancy test and a general surgical review, exclude appendicitis and then get sent home two days later. And it's all just put down to either an ovarian cyst rupturing or a bit of PID, antibiotics are used sometimes. And sadly, many of those women actually have got endometriosis, so it can actually present in a semi-acute way, or they've had a real crescendo of pain which has led them to hospital. So I think once, if you've got patients on your books who have had uh, several episodes of unexplained pelvic pain, do start thinking about getting an assessment for endometriosis. Mm, that's an excellent point. Thank you, Neil. So at what point should women be referred for a specialist assessment and what factors would necessitate a more urgent referral, i.e. the red flags? I think, again, it, it sort of com- comes down to um, common sense. If, if someone has two to three out of ten symptoms, they're not having a lot of time off work, they're managing, they're anxious and averse to any surgical intervention, they're not particularly worried about fertility, and simple drugs such as NSAIDs. And I, I, my patients actually tell me that they prefer ibuprofen to Ponstan. Simple drugs like NSAIDs and Panadol for a few days a month, I'm letting them carry on with their lives without affecting both work and social and exercise function. Then I think it's reasonable with a normal examination. And if you have the luxury of a scan, great, get one. It's reasonable to continue conservatively, but often I'm finding that there's a whole lot of anxiety creeping in. Um, For the younger uh, clientele, the the mums are getting very anxious about the uh, young woman's future. So even in those cases, it can be very helpful to have a, you know, 40 minute consult to actually go through it in detail and not rush in and do surgery, but talk about options and management plans and think about um, a multidisciplinary team approach. So the team has become very important because one of the things I found really frustrating is that surgery, even when you find endo, when you do the laparoscopy, and even when you think you've done a good job of clearing it, we only seem to have anywhere between a 70 and 80% significant improvement rate. So there must be other things causing pelvic pain. It's unlikely that in those cases it was endometriosis doing it. And what I'm finding increasingly that having a wider team um, available is very useful. We we talk to pain teams, so we have experts in pelvic pain. Uh, There's a lot more we're understanding about chronic pain and central sensitization and how the Um, threshold for pain signals is being reset with chronic pain. There's approaches through the pain team to to get CBT and psychological counselling, how to deal with pain. Um, Incidentally, one of the things that some of the patients find difficult is uh, in some of the pain team scenarios, uh, particularly in public, um, uh, the anxious patients, which a lot of them are, don't like going into a room and seeing three or four people at the same time. And that's been fed back to me several times. Um, The pain teams often then have access to psychosexual counseling for appropriate women. Um, The wider team should also, especially with the 
widespread nature of obesity um, be involving nutritionists. Um, there is evidence that, that a low FODMAPs diet can help with even endometriosis, not just with bowel-related pain. Personal trainers might be appropriate for doing a 12-week body challenge for the appropriate patient. We know that healthy, fit, slim uh, men and women are generally better at coping with um, life and um, pain and their pain uh, uh, symptoms and chronic pain symptoms seem to get better with fitness, uh, probably due to endogenous opiates. Gastroenterologists can be very helpful if you, if you have a significant pointer towards the pain being of bowel origin. And it will be appropriate for some of these women to have uh, colonoscopies and a full workup there. Um, and then finally, uh, I'll never forget the pelvic pain physio. We have a, an excellent physio. And so for patients where there's a lot of um, dyspareunia, for example, or sensitization of the pelvic floor muscles with trigger points and vaginismus, then uh, a pelvic pain physio who's, who's also usually a pelvic floor physio, uh, incontinence and prolapse physio, can be very useful. Um, so again, that can be either with or without surgery. Um, and then finally for surgery, the decision to who to, who to put forward for surgery and whether the whole team of uh, urology, uh, colorectal surgeon, gynecologist, who, who, who's the appropriate people, that, that can also be a, a very important decision. So talking about management now, what are the principles of medical management? Uh, yeah, Louise, the, 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 in general terms, again, coming back to that sieve where someone's coping and they're not that keen on, on moving over to specialist assessment, I think it's perfectly reasonable, again, with assessing their symptoms simple analgesics, examination that's essentially normal. In those cases, I think it is important that the woman have an examination. Obviously, if they're Virgo intacta, you, you, you shouldn't be doing a bimanual exam. And in those cases, an ultrasound scan will be quite useful, just a transabdominal scan to make sure there's no ovarian cysts or chocolate cysts. Um, and in those patients, once you've got a degree of uh, reassurance that there's no pelvic mass, there's no specific fixity or scarring, then I think it's entirely appropriate to try hormonal suppression. And the commonest drug uh, for appropriate women would be the combined oral contraceptive and something like AVA, which is a levonorgestrel containing COCP. Other women, it might be more appropriate to look at a POP. We know that uh, I mean, traditionally, from my training in, in the UK, uh, in the era where laparoscopies were mainly just diagnostic, uh, we're going back a good 20, 25 years now, you would diagnose the endo and then the patient would be given three months of progesterones. So harking back to that era, we still uh, know that norethisterone, something like five milligrams twice a day for six months, uh, depot or indeed uh, probably better if you're going to go down that line to go for oral Provera because if they get side effects they can stop it. Something like 10 milligrams three times a day for three months 
These drugs have all got a, a indication in the use of endo or suspected endo. I, I tend to go initially for the COCP. Um, I'm not uh, averse to using GNRH analogs like Zolodex, but again, very, very large studies carried out in, in the 90s showed that those drugs were pretty good at helping with endo pain. But as soon as they were stopped, most of the women who had the initial problems came back. And of course, there's the side effects with osteoporosis and menopause and hot flushes, vasomotor symptoms, and then you have to add in, add back estrogen. So um, those are reserved for very difficult to treat cases these days. So yes, certainly reasonable to, to trial the pill. Uh, and simple analgesics and simple NSAIDs. But after, what I tend to do is I tend to say to the, when we are going down that line is, is just provide it normally initially. So they're taking it cyclically, the pill I mean. And then after three months, if, if it hasn't made a significant improvement, it might even be worth doing tricycling where you're taking three sequential packets. So 63 days of active pill. Or, or even four packets, um, because a lot of these young women have severe dysmenorrhea, so you can help there. And if that's not making a, good, a big difference, then then referral. Trouble, of course, being with tricycling, etc., is that you can get breakthrough bleeding that can become problematic. And then, what women need surgical management, and exactly what would this entail? Okay, so um, most of the time we're we're looking at conservative surgery. We haven't got a diagnosis yet in most cases. So um, it's not necessarily something where you would go straight to a hysterectomy. Obviously, where fertility is wanted, you definitely wouldn't. So initially, it does usually involve a laparoscopy. Sometimes you'll have women in their mid-40s who have had pain for many years, have completed their childbearing, they've got heavy periods, and, and in those cases, you could go to more radical surgery like a hysterectomy usually laparoscopic. But yeah, the mainstay of both diagnosis and treatment is conservative surgery in the form of laparoscopy and treatment of endometriosis and any cysts. We, most of us in this field do like to look at some adjunctive treatment post-op. So we uh, often will discuss the pros and cons of inserting a Mirena or levonorgestrel device um, because we know that A, it can help with pelvic pain in around 60% of patients um, and B, it seems to, in some studies, has reduced the risk of recurrent endometriosis from around 30% to about 15% in one particular study. So it, that can be quite useful and it's there for five years or the, the, the patient may wish to go back on the pill. So we tend to sort of talk about something other than just surgery. Risks postoperatively, yes, there's uh, all of these surgeries carry um, small but significant risks. So choosing the patients for surgery is important. The, I think the era of laparoscoping everyone, um, even with mild symptoms, is gone. Um, the risks in involve uh, the usual uh, risks such as hemorrhage and injury to other structures, um, bowel, bladder, ureter, 
so yeah the, the 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 discussion needs to be quite detailed and careful but for many women with with significant endometriosis surgery can make a big difference the other thing that i think it's quite important to to think about is that we are in an era where there are patients around who have had a very large number of laparoscopies and um, I, I've seen uh, several patients who have ha already had, by the time they're 30 to 34, have already had anywhere between five and 12 laparoscopies. And I think with some of the patients, it, it has become about, oh, well, yeah, I've, you know, it helped me for a year, now I've got it again, so it's time for another laparoscopy. And I think that needs to be very carefully thought out. And that's why that initial discussion and assessment and counseling it might not just be over one appointment it might be over several and it would ideally also involve a good empathic uh, multidisciplinary team approach so that everyone goes into things with their eyes open and there's a backup plan after surgery um, you know having said that there will be patients who do get recurrent endometriosis and there is a need for going back to theatre, uh, you know, even within a year or two after the initial laparoscopy, but they should be few and far between. Fertility can be affected in women with endometriosis. How quickly should they be referred and what should the workup be in primary care before we make our referral? Well, I think if you've got someone who's, who are New Zealand residents uh, who satisfy the criteria for uh, referral to the public fertility service then just follow their criteria and you know do the relevant blood tests and semen analysis tests and refer but if you've got someone who apart from their fertility has got significant pain and you're suspicious that they might have endometriosis then it probably in most cases will be very useful to assess send those for assessment to gynae surgeons with a special interest with endometriosis public or private, so that a laparoscopy can be considered at the appropriate time and they can have surgery for endometriosis and management of that. Um, it's a difficult one because depending on what resources you read, fertility, or should I say infertility, seems to have an association with endometriosis. and. It's very easy for women and their families to get very, very anxious about this whole area. Uh, it's probably not something that in primary care you should you should mention uh, the link uh, at that first visit. Um, it does need discussion. It does need planning. Uh, and depending on what you read, anywhere between 30 and 75% of women with endometriosis will have problems getting pregnant. But conversely, there are studies that say that up to 70% of women with endometriosis won't have problems. So I think it does need discussion. It particularly becomes important uh, from the mid to late 20s onwards. You, you don't really want to be managing someone's chronic pelvic pain conservatively right the way through to 33 and then they present with years of infertility and everyone's missed the boat. So yes, if you've got someone with pelvic pain, it probably is worth um, at some stage 
even if it's being managed with continuously taking the pill, for example, or even the few women that are still on Depot Provera, that they get assessed at some stage in their mid-20s. And to conclude this podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners, Neil? I think um, really the first thing is, I mean, I, you, I, at my med school, we were, the ONG department taught us that, you know, to, so that we don't miss ectopic pregnancy, just assume that everyone's pregnant until proven otherwise, um, women, I mean, and just presume that every pregnant woman's got an ectopic until proven otherwise, which sounds a bit over the top uh, in this day and age. But I think one message should be that every woman who presents with acute or chronic pelvic pain, uh, dysuria, dyspareunia, dysmenorrhea, dyskesia, may well have endometriosis. And I think that that's probably the, the prime take-home message. Yes, PID is still a big problem in all our societies. It's It does need managing, but if you haven't got some fairly barn door symptoms, signs, positive swabs, high-risk um, patients, then do start thinking laterally about endometriosis. Apart from that, the other take-home message is if you're not particularly concerned, if the examination is fairly normal, if uh, simple analgesics or the combined pill makes a significant difference, it's perfectly fine as a starting point. Um, anyone else, if you can get an ultrasound scan, if you're worried about pelvic pain, get one. Um, apart from those patients, everyone else, you probably do need at some stage to think of a referral. I'm pleased to say that the public hospitals have got specialists who can deal with endo. And unlike a few years ago, you, you will these days find that if you refer patients with significant pelvic pain, they will often get an appointment. They will be seen rather than sent back to you. So yeah, just just take it seriously. We, we need to just think about endo for all pelvic pain. Thank you, Anil. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks very much, Louise. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.